Welcome to Apparently, the podcast for absolutely average parents. I'm Ann Johnsos. And I'm Tracy Weiner. Ann and I have been friends for a very long time at WGN. Yeah, we started here in the 90s. I produced Bob Collins and Roy Leonard. And I produced Spike and Cochran. So we spent our 20s as wing women for each other, and it didn't work out very well. But then it did, and we found the right guys, and we stood up in each other's weddings. And then we had babies within weeks of each other, and we went from producers to reproducers. We make it look easy. Which brings us to this podcast. We want to talk about topics that intrigue us and you and provide some knowledge to other average parents. We're average. We're not experts. So we'll tackle these topics with people who know what they're doing. Yeah, we get the experts. And I fully expect to embarrass myself along the way. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we already have. So welcome to Apparently. We make it look easy. We make it look good. When everybody sees it, they stop and look. Apparently, establishing sleep habits early for babies is crucial, and it helps them become better sleepers in life and in their childhood development. Duh. Yeah. Makes sense. Yes. Although I got to tell you, I had a I had a rough a rough and tumble time. Yeah. Putting it into practice and making it happen is entirely a different thing because life gets in the way. You have more kids. So (laughs) it's busy life, busy family. It makes it near impossible to to get it right. Right. So according to a study that was published in uh, Sleep Medicine, June issue, sleep patterns are the number one influence on early childhood development. And by the time these children were two years old, many of them were behind in their language development. Was Sophie or Hannah a good sleeper as babies? Uh, Terrible. Uh, Sophie didn't sleep through the night until she was eight months old. And when she did, I remember distinctly, I woke up and she was not up. And I thought for a second, oh, my God, the baby's dead. And then because I, she slept long because she was still asleep and I couldn't hear her like she was in the other rooms and right. I was like the baby's dead and then I thought well if I go back to sleep she'll still be dead later so I'm gonna <laughs> go back to sleep because <laughs> I'm like a true new mom that's so tired yeah it's brutal and then you know we we have the benefit of having older kids now so we're like we're the light at the end of the tunnel kind of for sure know? and you know we always say that if you if you could remember how bad the newborn phase was you wouldn't have a second child amen so that's you know so some of this is us going to be we're going to try to remember it but you know the blessedly you can't remember because you're so tired yeah nothing imprints sleep deprivation did you ever have to drive around in the city in the car totally and uh she would fall asleep in that you know the carry out little uh in the baby carry yes yeah and then i would just keep her there i would just move that into the room and be like hey because if i if i picked her if i picked it up or picked her out of there then she was up yeah my kids never transferred out of the, if we went to grandma's house and they fell asleep in the car and i would go to put them in their crib or something yeah that never worked. no no did not happen so uh, mine we never did have to do the car in the middle of the night to get them to go to bed so i i call that a, a win for me i call not that a to, big win yeah um so when my daughter was born when Kay was born that was 12 years ago I had a ton of parenting books. Did you do that too? Yeah, I uh, I think I had some DVDs and I had that whole what to expect. Yep, when yeah. you're expect while you're yeah. pregnant and yeah. stuff, yeah. One book in particular was literally my bible. I read it cover to cover and 
because of reading this book, some of my family and friends kind of called me a sleep Nazi. <laughs> I was one of them. Yeah, I, you did. And, <laughs> Sorry. You know, sometimes I sacrificed a party or a play date or something because it would interfere with Kate's sleeping schedule. Because me, I'm a type A personality. I, I like structure and I like routine. I can own it. Mm-hmm. And so I felt comfortable in that routine and knowing that, okay, now it's time for nap or whatever. So it worked. It worked for me. So the book in particular I'm talking about is Dr. Mark Weisbluth's book, Healthy Sleep Habits, Happy Child. And it literally was instrumental in, in helping me set up these good practices in my house. And I think they're a better sleeper now because of it. Well, and I remember we would do Wiggle Worms together, which oh, yeah. is, you know, a music class that we would do. And um it was a morning class, and you were very adamant that we get back, you know, we had to be back home in time <laughs> oh for God. morning nap. And I, I remember being like, ah, oh, come on, let's go to Starbucks, you know, hey. And so I remember this vividly, that you were, you you paid attention to your schedule, and... In Erin's class, I totally I remember that. Yes. I know, but I, I just, I needed to know that, because I, I knew that if I messed with the schedule, that... um I, it was unpredictable what was going to happen. Sure, sure, so, that makes sense. So we, you know, the whole premise of our of our podcast is that we do the best we can. We're average parents, um, and then we bring in an expert. So right. I tracked down uh, Dr. Mark Weisbluth, the author of the book "Healthy Sleep Habits: Happy Child." He's been a pediatrician for over forty years. He founded the original sleep disorder center at Chicago Children's Memorial Hospital, which is now. Lurie Children's Hospital, Mm -hmm. and he's a professor of clinical pediatrics at Northwestern University School of Medicine. Doctor, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. So I'm such a huge fan of your book. I actually got it out. I've, I've handed it out to my sisters when they had kids, and I said, listen, this really worked for Kate and Ethan. You have to read it. It's, it's great information. It's, it's been so helpful for me getting through those first six months, if you will. Um, What are some of the best reasons, in your opinion, to get kids into a good routine to help them to establish those healthy habits? Well, if you look at uh, sleep in the same way you look at food, you can think of healthy food and junk food. And if you teach healthy food choices as your child grows up, they're more likely to have healthy food choices the rest of their life. And there are obvious health benefits in eating well. True. And the same thing is true for sleeping. Now, sleep impacts upon every aspect of our human existence. And sleep quality is, uh, can be thought of as a health benefit, too. So establishing routines and habits early on will have lasting benefit for the rest of the child's life. So, Doctor, um, let's go through the phases because, you know, a newborn is certainly very different from a 12-week-old. It's different from a five-month-old. When, when a parent brings a baby home, what should that parent do in terms of sleep training? So when you come home from the hospital, you just have to remember a few basic points. One is drowsy but awake, and drowsy but awake means that sometimes you put your baby down before your baby is in a deep, dead sleep. So you might breastfeed your baby or bottle feed your baby. And before the baby's in a deep, dead sleep, you put your baby down. If the baby were to cry, then you immediately pick your baby up. But you allow the baby the opportunity sometimes to fall asleep. And that's the beginning of the process of learning self-soothing. So drives you better awake. And a mother might do this once a day or once a week or father. 
But the point is, if you never do it, the baby gets dependent upon always being held, rocked, and won't fall asleep unless they sense the mother's body odor, heartbeat rhythm, maybe breast milk. And by putting your baby down, drives the bed awake, the child learns self-soothing. The second way the child learns self-soothing can be thought of as many naps. The newborn is put down frequently throughout the day before he or she gets overtired. And the nap might be short, might be long. There's no real pattern. But they can't tolerate long periods of wakefulness. So you try to keep the intervals of wakefulness brief between naps so the child doesn't get overtired. So many naps is important to keep the child well-rested. And the third is you can think of as many hands. Pretend it's only the mother who puts the baby to sleep. Then the child becomes accustomed to only the mother putting the baby to sleep, and that interferes with learning self-soothing. But if the father is involved, the aunt, the uncle, the nanny, siblings, if other people are involved in putting the baby to sleep, the child learns to more self-soothe. And it might be that mother might breastfeed the baby and pass the baby to father. Father does some soothing and puts the baby down, drives you better away. Here, too, the more people you can get involved, the better. But under real-life circumstances, it might be just an occasional thing that father does on weekends. That makes but sense. you want to start this early. And in 80% of children, if the parents start this early, which is drives you better awake, many hands, many naps, the baby will learn self-soothing, and there'll be no sleeping problems. But in 20% of babies, this doesn't work. These are the so-called colicky, fussy babies. Well, and a side note there, my, my firstborn was colicky, and we had to give her the antacids or whatever. Do, is right. there, do you take a different approach when yes. you have a colicky baby? So if you have a colicky baby, you cannot start as you mean to go. For those 20% of families, it doesn't work. And you know within a few days it doesn't work because the baby seems to be incapable of self-soothing. So you abandon the effort. And now you're developing coping strategies, which means getting more people involved so the mother doesn't get totally exhausted, Yeah. using swings, using car rides, using any kind of gimmick that you can think of for approximately three to four months. And the mother must take breaks without guilt because this is an exhausting three to four months. Yes. Well, those children will eventually outgrow this fussy colicky state three to four months of age. However, having said that, all children, 100% of children, need earlier bedtimes at six weeks of age. The brain matures in a very predictable way so that at six weeks of age, the baby starts to make specific social smiles at mom and dad. (laughs) This is 46 weeks after conception, so it's six weeks after the due date, which may not be exactly six weeks of age if the baby's born a little earlier, a little late. Mm-hmm. The second thing the baby does, in addition to social smiles, is the longest single sleep period now occurs in the evening hours. Prior to six weeks of age, it can be any time, but night sleep rhythms evolve around six weeks of age so that the brain is able to have, instead of short sleep intervals, and long sleep intervals during the day or night, they start to more regularly occur at night. It might be only uh, as five hours sleep before midnight, but it's longer sleep periods and 
addition to the social smiles and the longer night sleep, the baby's brain wants an earlier bedtime. So whatever the time the baby had been going to bed at six weeks of age, whether it's colicky or not colicky, you've moved the bedtime earlier. In your book, you said when a child sleeps is probably as important or maybe more important as how much. Well, right. Sleep quality depends upon a variety of things. One is duration, how long you sleep. And the second is for naps. Are the naps in sync with biologic rhythms? The third would be, is the sleep at night consolidated or is it interrupted, chopped up, fragmented? And the fourth would be, is it in sync with night sleep rhythms? If it's not in sync with night sleep rhythms, then it's like jet lag syndrome. It's not good quality sleep. So if a child is getting drowsy at 4 or 5 p.m., then maybe the bedtime should be 6 or 7 p.m., not 8 or 9 p.m. By putting the baby down and you're watching your baby more than watching the clock, when the baby's starting to get drowsy, you get better quality sleep and you avoid difficulties in falling asleep or staying asleep. What are some signs of a tired or overtired baby? Because I, I, you discussed it a little bit. That Well, that's a very good question. So if you think of drowsiness as eyelids drooping, slower motions, the child appears less social, less vocal, less interested in toys or people. Maybe the sucking is weaker or slower, decreased activity. The baby's quieter, less animated. The child appears less focused on his or her surroundings. Those are drowsy signs, and most people confuse them with overtired signs. If your child is fussy, irritable, or cranky, or rubbing the eyes, the child's way past drowsy, but is overtired. A good reason why some parents miss drowsy signs is that they're looking at their screens instead of the baby. Oh, now that was not true when, 12 years ago when we had our firstborns, sure. but that is probably sure. true totally very much Totally true now. now. Yes, I sure. agree. So catching the baby drowsy, that means you begin the soothing process before the child just into an overtired state. Because think of yourselves, when you work hard, work hard, even without caffeine, your body produces stimulating chemicals so you feel a bit more turned on, a bit wired. And when you immediately go on a vacation, it takes you a few days to unwind, to dissipate this natural high because of the body's response to being overtired to produce stimulating chemicals. This is true in babies too. So if you allow your baby to go past drowsiness into an overtired state, they have more difficulty falling asleep and staying asleep. So can you dispel a myth that was perpetuated in my family? I'm the oldest and I have, so I have, I had the first grandkid. So my daughter was the, um, the trial run, if you will, in my family. Uh, and we, we are very active and social and, and see each other quite a bit. But one thing that came up often was the, oh, just put her to bed later. She'll, she'll sleep in. And that was something that I literally was a fight every time we got together and slept over at my parents' house. They just didn't get it. So on an acute basis, that doesn't work because your body clock sort of is used to a wake-up time that becomes a habit. That's one. But if you look at populations of children who go to bed as a group really late, chronically, Two things are observed. One is they do sleep in a bit later, but their total night sleep is less. The extra sleep in the morning does not compensate 
for the late bedtime. So you wind up with, you're shorting the child on night sleep. Naps aren't too much affected, but children who don't get enough night sleep have impairments in development and school performance, academics, empathy, creativity, all kinds of things. So keeping your child up late chronically will cause your child to sleep in a little later, but their total night sleep is going to be too short. What do you say to the parents who say, I get home at 7, I get home at 8, and I want to see my baby before the baby goes to bed? Right. This is very difficult. And with dual career families, it's not that uncommon situation based upon their career, the commute time, things like that. But there's no 11th commandment that says, thou shalt spend time with your child at night. When I was in practice, I had plenty of families with this predicament. They would come home, and depending on the time, they might have... Worst case scenario is they don't see their child because their nanny had fed, bathed, and put their child to sleep. But these parents would go to bed earlier themselves and spend a leisurely, lovely morning time because they'd get up early with their kids, having breakfast and playtime. Okay, so it's just flipping so the switch. morning time is one option. Okay. Another option is the parent would come home around 7, let's pretend, both parents, and they have an overtired child who's falling asleep around nine. And we have a discussion and we work it out so that they can maybe put the child to bed at eight, which may not be ideal based on the child's age, but it's better than nine. So you do in reality the best you can, but an earlier, if, a, if you have a late bedtime, there's a big difference between seven, eight, nine p.m. And if you can move the bedtime a half hour or an hour earlier, and that will help the situation. Yeah, my husband didn't come home till later. I'm a stay-at-home mom, and my husband wouldn't come home until later. And I'll be honest, there were times that he actually didn't get to see the kids because I said the return on the investment of keeping them awake, like it wasn't worth it to me because they so were just kind of... You had to suffer the consequences of an overtired child yes. if you kept your child up too late. Now, did he cooperate or did he resist? No, the- we, were, we, we were united on that front. So this is he- a very important point. When a mother is forced by the husband, I'm just using stereotypes here, to keep the child up late so that he can see the child when he comes home from work, then she becomes the unappreciated victim. For sure. So in a sleep consult mode, the, the discussion has to be about the marriage a little bit and the cooperation between the parents for the benefit of the child, because I'm the child's advocate. Right. And sometimes you reach impossible situations, but most of the time, you know, people can see how the child will benefit from not being chronically overtired. Now, uh, we've talked a little bit about cry it out. Uh, at what point is that uh, something we implement? And then my question always was, because I had the colicky baby, I also wondered, A, was she hungry? Or B, did she need her diaper to be changed? Because we were always army crawling across the floor to (laughs) sniff her to see if she actually had, you know, pooped. Think about it. We didn't have video. Literally 12 years ago, doctor, there was no video. This big brother monitors like in the crib that you could see. It was just a sound. Yeah. But so how do you you know? For 80% of the families who start early with drowsy but awake, many naps, many hands, there's never an occasion when you would have to think of cry it out. For parents in that 80% of a group who don't do this or fail to get an earlier bedtime at 
six weeks of age or fail to establish reasonable naps at three to four months of age when they develop, they might develop innocently habits with their child so that the child is going to bed too late or is not getting naps when they need to or is getting too much attention at night so the sleep is fragmented. And they wind up with an overtired child whenever, three, six, nine months of age. And now they feel, oh, we have to correct this problem that we've created. And the options are things like graduated extinction, total extinction, check and console, chair method. There are a variety of ways that you can help the child learn self-soothing. And self-soothing is just basically putting your child down, drives you better awake, many hands, many naps. But to break the habit that the parent has created, they might have to ignore the child at night, which would lead to crying. Right. For the colicky family, sometimes at three or four months of age, the colic is gone, but the child is totally dependent upon the parents soothing the child endlessly, swings, car rides, in the laps, whatever. And these are exhausted parents, and they want to quickly get the child into a better rested mode, and they might do cry it out at that time, three or four months of age. So there are a variety of times when a parent might want to do it. But the facts are that when it's done under four months of age, if the child is put down you know, at a reasonably early hour and naps are in place, the first night on average is 30 to 45 minutes of crying. And that's a lot, but it's only the first night. The second night is 10 to 30 minutes. The third nap is zero to 10 minutes. And the fourth night is none. So it goes very quickly. Right. When the bedtime is reasonably early, when naps are in place. But if the kid's chronically put to bed too late, then what I just described does not occur. And parents say, oh, I tried it. My kid cried for two weeks and I gave up on it. I'm so mad. I'm angry. Didn't work. Is it ever too late to start sleep training? Never like- too late. The longer you wait, the harder it is because the more ingrained are the habits. But I have plenty of children who would come for consults to me at two, three years of age. And we would gradually start maybe moving to bedtime earlier, maybe being more strict about naps. Or in the children over two and a half will understand consequences using various rewards, restrictions, and privileges to teach the child better habits. So on one hand, it's never too late. But on the other hand, I can tell you more positively that if you start early and your child during the first half of your life learns to sleep well, there's a carryover effect into adolescence. Now, you have a 12-year-old, right? Yes, we both do, yeah. So that's a young teen, preteen, if you will. And the teenagers have enormous academic, social, athletic pressures on them that make it very difficult for them to stay well-rested. But if the teens know what it feels like to be well-rested, they look forward to that feeling because they've experienced it. And they strive for sleep. And it's much easier on the teenager and the family if they had, when they were younger, good sleeping habits. So there's a definite carryover effect. But the opposite's also true. There are plenty of teenagers and adults who have been chronically sleep-deprived. They have subjective blindness to their own sleep deprivation. They don't really appreciate how chronically that afternoon headache, buzz, behind the ears, achiness is not normal because it's been so much a part of their life. 
they think that it's okay to stay up really late at night because they've always done that. And the truth is, it's not okay. I was reading your book again in preparation for today, and there was something that you wrote that really stuck out with me now that I'm on the other side and I have a 12 and a 10-year-old, and that was healthy habits may appear to be less important to parents than the development of children's academic, social, and athletic or artistic skills, but the contribution of healthy sleep habits to a child's well-being does not diminish with age. And I, I, I thought about that, and I was like, Everyone has tutors and everyone has batting coaches and all these things to help them with school and um, sports and stuff. But nobody really pays attention to letting their kids stay up late. Correct. And it was it was something that now that I'm on the other side that I was like, you know, that's so true. I personally still believe in sleep. My kids, compared to their peers at school, go to bed a lot earlier than most of the people (laughs) that they go to school with. And that's a family choice on our part, and that's something that we like really instill in our family that sleep is important. But that's not widespread, I don't think, anymore with social media and computers and phones and all that other stuff. Correct. So there's a large sleep industry among adults now. That would be special mattresses, white noise machines, sound machines, trackers for your sleep, wrist trackers and things like that. People are trying to sell or pods that work for napping. So people are trying to monetize sleep deprivation in adults a lot. But the facts are that a lot of adults who don't sleep well are were children who never slept well either. And so it really begins early in life to develop good sleeping habits because when you just take a look at, let's say, older teenagers, okay? Older teenagers who don't sleep well are at risk for, obviously, automobile accidents, depression, marijuana, alcohol, and other drug abuse. And the question is, if you just look at these teenagers, is what came first, the depression that caused them to not sleep well or not sleeping well that caused the depression, right? Mm -hmm. But if you follow, like I did, because I was in practice for 40 years, you see a baby less than 24 hours of age, and then follow that child and the family through college age, it's clear when you have this long-term view that the parent's contribution to healthy sleep in the child is the most important thing, that they can either help the child or hinder the child to sleep better, and then they're at less risk for all these adolescent problems. Dr. Um So Tracy's sister, Amy, has got a three-year-old and a one-year-old, and she's going through what I went through as well. When the second baby came along, my toddler regressed. And when we moved the toddler into the big girl bed, suddenly she was able to get out and and pop downstairs in the middle of the night. Um, What do you suggest for people who are transitioning their good sleeping? Like She was a good sleeper until we put her in a big girl bed. Well... I'll answer that, but let me first make the comment that there's no natural thing that you call a regression. That's just a pop term right now, popular item. The most common situation is the second child is innocently kept up too late after six weeks of age because the firstborn distracts parents and they don't see the drowsy signs in the baby and appreciate the fact that the baby needs an earlier bedtime at six weeks of age. That's true. So that's now a problem with the baby. Okay. Going to more of your point, the older child 
parents have a variety of feelings about the newborns in the house, less attention from parents, mom is more tired, she has to take care of the newborn, she's breastfeeding, whatever, all that's reasonable. So the older child has to cope with the fact that mom and dad are caring for another child. The more you keep routines in place for naps and night sleep, the older child will do fine. And if the older child slips into a situation where they get overtired, then you do what's called a reset. A reset is simply one night, this is for like a two, three, four-year-old child, of a super early bedtime, like 5.30 p.m., to restore the sleep debt that had accumulated from maybe the disruption from a newborn coming home okay. or illness or vacation. So one night of a reset in an otherwise well-sleeping child will often correct things very quickly. The other thing you do is recognize that by moving a child to a big girl's bed, how old was she when you did this? Uh, three. She may, on the one hand, wanted to be the big girl and be into a bed, but she might have felt that it was oceanically large and had a sense of insecurity and wasn't quite ready for it. Naturally, you wanted the crib for the baby. Right. Under these circumstances, maybe the baby goes temporarily into a porta crib not ideal, but it's a temporary maneuver. And you allow the older child to stay in the crib for a few more months. Doctor, I can go go you one better. We actually went on Craigslist and got a second crib. There you go. So we could not, play. not everybody has the room for that or can afford it, but you did one better. Yes, you did. Yeah, but we just wanted to keep her contained, so it was not really... And when you put her back in the crib, what happened? She slept. So she, let's pretend... You didn't or couldn't do that, then from that point forward, you might have had a overtired three-year-old. So there are, of course, things that you know we. Not everybody can afford a second crib or has a room for it, but you, you want to try to be as creative as you can. Sure, makes total sense. Well, I, I, I so happy that you could I'm speechless because I really loved your book and honestly I passed it on to so many people and you. you know some sometimes you know it's a it's a it's a trade-off and it's a, a choice and I, I made that choice and I look back and I I don't regret it because I'm having fun now and I'm just as social as I was back then and um to me, it was it was okay to put her to bed at 6.30 well, because that worked for me. One parent, I think, said it really well. I quote her in the book. She said, you know, it's very socially limiting to have to leave a party early on a weekend to put my baby to sleep at a reasonable hour or to say no to certain events because my baby needed to nap at home. But it's also liberating in that when I'm out with my baby, she doesn't thus cry ever have tantrums because she's fully well rested. Yep. And that when well rested, they can go to restaurants and she's a joy to be with. It's the overtired child that is the child prone to meltdowns, tantrums, crying that interfere with socializing and being in public places. So and then it just ruins your experience anyway. So what's the point of staying up until nine o'clock if it's right. going to be a crummy time out to right. dinner? And it's quality over quantity. Right. Yes. Thank you so much, Dr. Weiss. Very welcome. I wish you the best. Author of Healthy Sleep Habits, Happy Child. Thank you Thank so you. much. Thanks, Thank Doctor. You. You're welcome. Bye now. So apparently the more sleep, the better. And you do what you have to do to get it because parenting is really hard. It is hard. I totally agree. And I'm sorry I used to make fun of you for putting the babies <laughs> to bed so early. <laughs> That's okay. I forgot. It was 12 years ago. I've already forgotten it. So 
It's all good. Then I'm not reminding you again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm Tracy Weiner. And I'm Ann Johnsos. Thanks for listening. We make it look easy. We make it look good. When everybody sees